You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. So we have been in 1 Timothy, and we are wrapping up the last chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And this was basically God's blueprint um, for the church, for ecclesia. Ecclesia is the ancient word for church. It's the word that Jesus spoke. When he said church, he said the word ecclesia, and that word means to gather together or an influential group of gatherers. Uh, And in the context of church, it's when we gather together to make a difference in the name of Jesus Christ. And uh, this letter written by the Apostle Paul to his spiritual son, Timothy, covered a lot of ground. It it covered so far in how to interpret the difficult passages when there's disagreements. Uh, He talked about picking and caring for leaders, how to care for one another. And now he's going to talk about the Mondays. All right, this, this uh, chapter, or this actually, this whole letter has been about the, the weekends and, and when we gather together, but what about the Mondays? How is the church, when we leave here on Monday, how are we to take what we, what we learned, what we, what we got pumped up about here and take it to our jobs, to our homes, to our schools? So chapter six covers that in a very unique and interesting way. So we're going to jump right in, and then I'm going to give some clarification because the Bible is a beautiful love letter from a father, from a dad to his kids, but sometimes his words are taken out of context. And this, uh, this is an example, these two verses. All who are under the yoke of slavery, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better. These are the things you are to teach and urge them uh, on, or urge uh, them and challenge them and uh, basically teach them. Now, this, these two verses, and there's others like it in the New Testament, have been used to teach the false belief that Christianity promotes slavery. This is not a promotion or an endorsement of slavery. In fact, when you think of slavery in the ancient Roman world, it does not in any way compare to what we think of when we think of slavery. You need to know this. I want to clarify what slaves in Rome were about. In that culture, the church was filled with slaves. You've got to understand that more than a third of all of the Roman Empire were slaves, That means one out of every three people in any church in the Roman Empire was a slave. And they were able to come to church and come and go and and go to the market, but they were still slaves. It it was not slavery like you might imagine or think of slavery. I've got some images here of some some older slavery images from uh, the Roman Empire, what it actually looked like. And you need to realize that slavery in the Roman Empire was a result of a variety of things. It was a result of war. So when somebody was conquered, oftentimes their people were taken back as servants for the soldiers for a season. They were not a a lifetime slave, but many of them, they lost a war and they had to serve in that capacity. Many of them were slaves because of unpaid debt. They, uh, you know, aren't you glad that you're not a slave to, well, some of you are a slave to Discover Card and Visa and MasterCard. Now, some of you guys, they haven't paid that bill, and you're like just hoping that they don't come and get you. Well, in the Roman culture, they wouldn't just come and get you. They would literally come and get you. They would take you, and you would work 
for that owner until that debt was paid. And it was also, uh, sometimes slavery was a result of parents giving away their children because they were poor. Uh, if their parents were super poor, they would often give their children away to masters or to people to provide for them a life. Also, it was those who willingly submitted to slavery to learn a skill. For example, every person who was a physician in the Roman culture was a slave first. Every person that was a blacksmith in the Roman culture was a slave first. Every major skill in the Roman culture you learned from a slave, uh, being a slave to a master who is now free and was uh, now that profession. So, in fact, the Bible gives the impression that Luke, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke and who wrote the book of Acts, was a slave uh, to a guy named Theophilus who he wrote Luke and Acts to. Many people believe that that was his former master, but now he was free and he was writing to his former master about the gospel. So slavery, when you think of slavery in the Bible, don't think of what you might imagine slavery to be, okay? So when he says slaves, treat your bosses with uh, a sense of respect and obedience, he's talking about more of a, of a almost a job situation. Uh, but Galatians says this, the Apostle Paul says this, um, Christians looked at slavery different than the rest of the world. Uh, you are sons of God, he says in Galatians 3.26. He says, you are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither uh, slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Shocking and radical words. You need to understand that even though these were people who were slaves and they, they were there for a few years for debt, for poverty, to learn a skill, they still had no freedom. They still had to do whatever their master said. And they were not considered equals in the Roman culture. But here comes Jesus and here comes the apostles and they say, it doesn't matter if you're a slave or free or Jew or Greek or male or female, you are one in Christ Jesus. You belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. That means his offspring and heirs according to the promise. See, this was the beauty of the early church. In a culture that did not allow slaves and masters to eat in the same environment or restaurant, in the church you had all kinds of people from different backgrounds, different economic social levels on the ladder, freemen, uh, slaves, you had masters, you had skilled workers, you had people of poverty, you had widows, you had married people, you had everyone in a room worshiping and celebrating Christ together. This was unheard of in the Roman culture, and it's a reason why the church blew up so fast, how it went from 120 people in an upper room to nearly half a million people within one generation and a million and a half in less than two generations. And that's because the church believes that everyone is welcome. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is welcome. It doesn't matter who you are or what your background is or where you've been. Everyone is welcome. Different types of people worship and serve God together. And this is so interesting that even in the Bible, a slave and a master outside of church 
The master was the boss, but in the church, there's even evidence where in the church, some of the slaves were leadership and elders in a church over their own masters. Only in the church could that be done. So the church is, in a, is a radical place of life change, a place of equality, and it's an amazing place where the master and the slave become friends. Okay? So when you read the context of slavery in the Bible, don't think roots, okay? Don't think some of the horrible images that we know about slavery and the abuses of the human spirit and, and human beings. Slavery is not God's culture. It was the Roman culture. But I want you to notice how they responded. They did not rebel. They just lived differently, okay? They were free in spirit, even if they weren't free in the flesh. All the hearts of people changed and eventually the culture's view of slavery changed and within 200 years in the Roman Empire, slavery was pretty much gone and in large part because the church led the charge against slavery. Now, how does that apply to our life today? Very simple. Some of you are a slave to the wage. Some of you have a master and he's called your boss, all right? So whenever you read the Bible and it talks about slaves and master relationship, the best way to put that into context is you and your boss. So what we're going to talk about today for just a few minutes before we wrap up what Paul is saying is I want to talk about your job or your lack of a job. I want to talk about how you can connect with your boss and how you as a boss can connect with the people under you. So how to serve God in the marketplace. So this is what, what Paul is saying. Hey, he's saying, Timothy, here's how to conduct a life in the church. But you know what? Monday, they're going to hit the ground. How are they to live out their Monday in the work environment? Here's the first thing you need to realize. I want you to write this down. Is that the perfect job doesn't exist. Some of you guys are going to college to get the perfect job. And some of you have been looking for the perfect job your whole life. And some of you have said no to hundreds of jobs because you're looking for the perfect job. Ever look for the perfect job? Anybody here ever look for the perfect job? One is honest. Anybody else? Two, three. How many of you have, never, how many of you ever looked for a job? If you've looked for a job, raise your hand, put it up high, say, I have looked for a job. Now, how many, keep your hands up if, you, if you've looked for a job. And now, put it, uh, keep it up if you found the perfect job. <laughs> you found the perfect job? You found the perfect job? Uh, well, you haven't started yet. <laughs> you know why there's no perfect job? Because there's no perfect people. And as long as there's human beings... In the workforce, there'll never be a perfect job. We need to have a realistic view of work and jobs. Some are waiting for the perfect job or the perfect boss, and you're never going to have one, and I'll tell you why. The first reason is this. It's Adam's fault. Okay, Adam, yes, Adam from Adam and Eve, Adam. First of all, let me tell you this about, the, about work. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. Everybody say work it. To work it. And take care of it. Guys, listen. A job is not a result of the fall of man. A job is not a curse. A job is God's plan for every human being. God created us to work. Hey, isn't that awesome? How many of you guys would love not to work? <laughs> I appreciate your honesty, but you're created to work. 
I know it's not fun, and I'll tell you why it's not fun. Well, it's because of what Adam did, and here's why it's not fun. Look at Genesis 3, verse 17. It says, to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife. Pause there for a minute. <laughs> just had to clear my throat. <clears throat> just kidding. It's just a funny place for a joke. I listen to my wife every day. She says, do what I say. No, I'm just kidding. All right, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will not eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since that is from where you were taken, and from the dust you are, and from the dust you return. So he basically says, because of the curse work, is not going to be fun anymore. All right, here's the reality of work is this, a basic truth. We will always strive to rid the weeds of work. Just when you think you have the perfect job, a weed pops up, a person, a coworker, a boss, a challenge, a skill set that you're not prepared for, um, a, a project, weeds, they'll always be. And, and because of that, work will always be hard. Now, there'll be some days when work is not so hard and some days where it's really almost unbearable. But you need to realize this, that there is no such thing as easy money. Some people spend their whole life, maybe you have the, the family member in mind that is always looking for easy, easy money. You know, the get-rich opportunities that, you know, where you don't have to work hardly any hours at all, but you make like three times as much as someone who works a 40-hour job week. You ever known those jobs? You know, part-time, make, you know, $6,000, make three, you know, six figures. It, it only, you know, six hours a week. I'm like, no, no, no. It's not reality. We're not designed that way. And, and there are people who are always going to get rich off the back of people wanting to get rich quick. But you need to realize we'll always strive to rid the weeds of work. So what do you do if your boss is a jerk? Well, that's where the Apostle Paul kicks in. He says this. He says, 1 Timothy 6.1, all, no matter what position you're in, who are under the yoke of slavery or a job, should consider their masters, their boss, worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. So if your boss is a jerk, what do you do? You respect and obey anyway. All right. Well, I don't like my boss. Welcome to a job. All right. Well, I don't like this project. Well, it's called work for a reason, right? I, I, I had a young person who was, I told, I told them that, and I thought that person was going to kill me. I, she said, man, it was a hard day. I'm like, it's called a job. It's called work. And, and, you know, not to be unsympathetic, but it is work. And work is, is by the sweat of your brow. And whether you're a guy or a gal, uh, you know what? Work is going to be hard, and you may not like every boss that is over you. In fact... Just make sure your boss is not in the room. And then I want you to think to yourself and raise your hand, do you think you're smarter than your boss? Raise your hand if you think you're smarter than your boss. <laughs> All right, a few people are honest. Anybody else think you're smarter than your boss? A little bit? You're kind of like, All right, how many of you guys, your boss is smarter than you? <laughs> All right, well, that's good to know that some of you believe. How many of you... How many feel like your boss is a good boss? All right, I'm not going to ask the opposite question for the rest of you. 
This is what Titus says. He said, well, four reasons are this. Why should I obey my boss and do what he says anyway, even if he's a jerk? Well, the first reason is this. It makes God look good. It just makes God look good. If you're a Christian, realize that God's reputation is more important than our rights and our opinions. People often decide what they think about God based upon what they think about you at work. Judgmental, always late, a bad mouth, arrogant, rude. Why would they want a God like that if you in the workplace are like that? See, we represent Jesus on Mondays even more so than on Sunday. It is easy to sit in this room and go, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, to raise our hands, sing some songs, and to not use profanity. All right, But all of a sudden, you walk out of here, and on Monday, it's rude, it's obnoxious, and you're mean and telling dirty jokes, or you're just being a gossip and everything. The, the faith of Jesus is lived out on Monday. It's easy to look good on Sundays. And many, I want to tell you, you guys are looking good. You guys look good. You're beautiful people. And I know that on Monday, it's, it's another story for some of you. The challenge is, is that when you do what God asks you to do, you make him look good. You make God look at Titus. Uh, this is Paul writing to another young pastor named Titus. He says this. He says, teach slaves, employees, to be subject to their masters, their bosses, in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them. Some of you guys, you need to stop talking back to your boss and not to steal from them. Put those paper clips back. Leave those pins alone. You didn't buy those pins, all right? But to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching of God about our God and our Savior, listen to this, that they will make that teaching attractive. I have a question for you. Are you making Jesus look attractive at work? When they see you work and your work ethic and how you work and how you act on Monday, are they going, man, something about that person is, is different and I want to know what it is. They're drawn to you. Attraction is when you're drawn to you. Are they drawn to you as a person in your character and how you work? Don't forget your boss needs Jesus just like you. So if your boss is a jerk and you are an excellent employee, you will show Jesus to a boss that needs Jesus just like you. Second reason we need to obey, even when he's a jerk or she's a jerk, is that it will save your neck. You know, I was followed by a police officer all the way here this morning. I didn't do anything. They didn't pull me over. And then there was a Jeep that pulled up, a Wrangler with all the doors off and a ladder literally stretching all the way across the top of the car. And I'm like, oh, he is so busted. And, and sure enough, the police officer got from tracking me, left tracking me, and tracked the guy and within two minutes had pulled him over. And I thought, you know, anybody here ever been like, thank you, Jesus, for pulling me over? Anybody here just been real thankful? Nobody's thankful when you get pulled over. How many, no, don't raise your hand. But how many of you just think to yourself, uh, we're jerks to the police officer? Did, did that help you? Did, did, did that help them to relieve that ticket? You know, no, when, when you get pulled over, if you're wise, you do what? You put on the charm. Why, yes, sir. Why, why here it is right here, sir. Oh, I'm not sure what you're talking about. Well, uh, I was speeding. When? I, my, my gauge said, I'm on my way to church. <laughs> I used to... <laughs> 
I used to get, I used to live at Christ for the Nations, and I went to church in Ronquil, and I would drive, you know, 30 miles uh, to go to church on the weekends, and, and I got pulled over a time or two when I was a young adult on the way, and, and usually I would play the, I'm going to church, and I teach a Sunday school class card as often as I could, and it almost worked every Sunday that I got pulled over. I didn't get pulled over every Sunday, but when I got pulled over, and it was more than once because I'm a young person, I'm stupid, um, and not our young people, they're all really smart. Yes, but uh, I did often play that card because I put on the charm. You know, when you have someone who is over you and could seriously affect your future, you don't treat the person badly. It is in your best interest, it is wisdom to be courteous and polite. When you listen and obey your boss, you are saving your neck. Proverbs 16, 14 says, A king's wrath is a messenger of death, but a wise man will appease it. That means don't tick the king off. Be nice to your boss. Don't, like, don't give a false flattery, but be a good employee. Only a fool riles a rhino. Man, rhinoceros may be big, stinky, mean, and dumb, but if he's angry, he will ruin your life. So be respectful to that boss. It will save your neck. Some people like on their fifth job, like, you know what? I'm not going to let people push me around anymore. You know what else you're not going to do? You're not going to be working. Proverbs 20, verse 2 says, A king's wrath is like the roar of a lion. He who angers him forfeits his life. It is to a man's honor to avoid strife, but only a fool is quick to quarrel. And that's in the context of leadership and your boss. It will save your neck. Here's a third reason why you need to obey your bosses is it's the best way to get ahead. Daniel, maybe you've heard of him. He's got a whole book uh, that he wrote in the, uh, the, he partially wrote it in the Old Testament. And he was a guy, take the thought, he was a young man who was taken as a captive into a foreign land. And you know what he had to do in order to get a job? Uh, well, he was forced into it. He was castrated and his whole diet was changed and forced upon him. His whole lifestyle, culture, language, everything was taken from him. And a new life, culture, and style was given to him. And I don't know if, if anybody's ever gone to a job interview where they say, what are the requirements? Uh, castration is, is number one. And then after that, we'll second interview. Um, he was forced into slavery by a pagan king, but instead of being a jerk about his position of where he was, he was respectful. He honored his boss, his king, and he rose to the top ranks in the entire kingdom all Yeah. Well, there's no light on it, so I'm not sure. All right. Here's another guy.
crew and everybody that jumps up to take care of things. That's awesome. Thank you. If you have problems with your boss or don't like the task you've been given, remember you're on a mission. Anybody here ever wait tables? Anybody here ever been a waiter or waitress? I was for many years. I was in food service a long time before I became a pastor. And some of my earliest jobs were waiting tables. And none of you were jerks at the table, I'm sure. But how many of you have ever waited on somebody that was just a real jerk, rude and obnoxious? And how did you treat that person? With courtesy, hopefully, with respect. And why did you do that? Because that's your assignment. That's your job. Listen, the world is going to be filled with people who are going to be hard to get along with. But your assignment is to be a missionary, an ambassador for Jesus. If you can do that for a job, I think you can do that for Jesus. We are called to be ambassadors, sent by God as a missionary. Now, what if your boss is a believer? Well, he answers that question in 1 Timothy. He says, those who have a believing master or boss are not to show less respect for them because they're brothers. That means you're a Christian, cut me some slack. Have you guys ever been at work and you think, man, my boss is a Christian. I think they should let me, you know, come in a little late, you know. Or maybe you've been a boss and you've been misused because people knew you were a Christian. Instead, they ought to serve them even better, give them even more respect. Because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. So only one thing, if your boss is a believer, very simply it's this, never take advantage of that relationship. Man, sometimes Christians like to take advantage of other Christians. Man, they, they think that, well, I hired this plumber, and this plumber is a Christian, so I think maybe you can give me a cheaper rate because I'm a Christian. Hook a brother up, right? Hook another Christian up. You know, maybe because we're Christians, you know, you can allow me to come in late. Or you can maybe tip me a little bit more, even if I wasn't really good at serving. Or, or, or maybe I can get a discount. Or maybe I, you won't write me up. Or, or just maybe you'll just give me some extra slack because we're like family, man. We're like brothers in the kingdom, right? And then what makes it even harder is some people, they go to church with their boss. And so on Sundays, they're like all family. And then on Mondays, they're like all business. And you're like, oh, come on, man. We just were at church yesterday. Extra time off. I'll tell you what, Christians in business often get burned by other Christians. So never take advantage of that relationship. And if you're a boss, very simple. Treat and pay them what they deserve. I have here now the final parts of 1 Timothy. And I have this I want to talk about. What the Apostle Paul does is he now... Takes a trip. Any of you guys ever had to say goodbye to somebody you love? I have. I've moved a lot when I was a kid. And when I moved here from, uh, from Indiana, I was saying goodbye to the longest time I've known people and friends in my church and my youth group and my neighbors. And I had to say goodbye. And when you're saying goodbye to somebody, what are some of the things you tend to do? When you say goodbye, you tend to just kind of ramble, Right? Because you don't, you want to just soak out every last minute of that 
you know, experience. You want to you relish in every moment that's left. So you're like, you've already said goodbye. You already hugged each other. But you're like, so, uh, you know, what route are you going to take? You're going to take like 45, you know? And you're like, yeah, yeah, you don't usually take. You're just shooting the breeze. You know it's time to go. But you're kind of drawn out. Hey, hey, remember that time? Remember that movie? Hey, remember, hey, don't forget this. You know, we talked about don't forget this. This is what's happening now. You got to remember that Paul is writing this letter, 1 Timothy, from prison. He's in prison in Rome, and he's not sure what's going to happen to him. So what he does is he writes this letter. It wasn't his time to go. He actually writes Titus and 2 Timothy from prison as well, but not knowing if he's ever going to see or have this opportunity to encourage Timothy again, this, this very end of the letter, he basically kind of rambles on a little bit. So what we're going to try to do is we're going to make sense of some of that rambling and bring it all together. Okay, so this is what happens at that moment. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, saying goodbye, ringing every second out of the moment. He says, and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, if anyone teaches false doctrines and does not urge, uh, does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. That's what he talked about, the first and second chapter. See, remember, don't forget. And then he says, he has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, and malicious talk and evil suspicions. That's chapter one. He says, don't forget. And he says, in constant friction between men of corrupt mind who've been robbed of the truth, who think that godliness is a means of financial gain. And he kind of tags a little bit of what is in chapter two. He says, remember, the church is not about a place of politics. The church is not about strife or a place of gossip. It is not a place to be fighting one another. It's not about seeking personal ambition or about making money. The very things that, honestly, the church is accused of around the world. He says, but godliness and contentment is great gain. Now, he talked about godliness, and we talked about exclusively when we hit second, uh, the second chapter. But what I want to bring it down to this is he brings it all home. The summation of everything he is saying to Timothy is this. You want the two ingredients that will bring you a free life. The two ingredients that will change everything about your life are this. Godliness and contentment are the two ingredients to a rich and wealthy life. He says, these two are great gain or great wealth. You want to be rich? You want to be wealthy? Learn to be godly and learn to be content. Godly means that you honor God with your life. It means you live in a way that honors God and reflects God and mirrors God and has the compassion of God. You are a disciple among the world. You live a godly life. And when people see you, they see God in you. And that you learn to be content. And I'll tell you something. In America, we have the worst time being content. How many, well, don't raise your hand. I was going to say many of us, we want to get that, that upgrade immediately. Our other one's fine, right? We got to get the newest, the best, the next, the next issue, the next generation, the newest download, the upgrade, a better, more, again, another one. You know, we, it's called materialism, and America struggles with it tremendously. Tim is saying that the summation of all I've said, you want church people to truly be free and to truly be rich, teach them to honor God with their life 
and to be content and thankful with what they have. Some of you guys here, you might be thinking, man, there's got to be more to life than what I have right now. You think, man, there's got to be more to, to what I'm doing at work and to, the, to paying bills. There's got to be more. Well, here's freedom. Live an honorable life before God and be thankful, and you will be at peace in this life and in the life to come. You will be free. So, so Paul then sends us a few reminders. So as we wrap up this, this letter, I want to give you a few reminders and it's five principles to live by that Paul kind of firestorms through. So we're going to hit them pretty fast. First one is this, verse 5, constant friction among men of corrupt minds who have robbed, uh, who've been robbed of the truth, who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Number one principle, the gospel is not a, project, a product that fixes life's problems. Some think, man, if I could just get Jesus, if I could just get to church, then if I, could, if I could join the club, somehow if I will say this prayer, Jesus will fix my marriage. Somehow if I say this prayer, all my debt will eventually go away. If I say this prayer, then God will give me a job. If I say this prayer, my kids will come back home. If I say this prayer and I positive confess, I'll get this car or this job or this house or this situation will be fixed. You need to understand that the gospel is not a product that you can just purchase and buy and possess that will solve all of life's problems. The Apostle Paul says there are those in the church that somehow think that the Christian life is going to fix everything and bring them financial gain and solve all of their problems in their life. It's like some people look at Christianity like a snake oil. You know, if you guys didn't know it, in the, in the uh, uh, 1800s, there were people that would, you know, there wasn't a lot of medicine. There wasn't, you know, the FDA. There wasn't, uh, you know, there wasn't real medicine going around uh, in, the, in the culture of the early Americas. So people traveled from town to town with these concoctions of things that, that had no evidence that they did anything. They didn't do anything. Some of them were literally oil from snakes. That's where that phrase came from. So they would take these snake oils or essential oils, I mean snake oils, and it just, <laughs> that was a joke. We use essential oils. It's just a joke. <laughs> I just think it's funny. All right. We use essential oils. But they would take these snake oils and they would go from town to town and say, this will make your hair stay in. And all the guys would buy it. This will take away all labor pains and all the women would buy it. This would, would fix this ailment and this will fix your eyesight or this will make your bones strong and this will increase your age. And people would buy the snake oil because they think that somehow that this bottle was the silver bullet to all the problems in their life. People think Christianity is some kind of silver bullet to fix everything. And when in reality, you're looking at the faith of Jesus like a snake oil. He's not a product that you can buy that will fix you. Coming to church does not mean you're going to be blessed with stuff. Stay away from people that promise financial gain if you follow Jesus. Christianity is not about everything being great with you in life. It's about knowing everything is great with you in God. Paul is telling Timothy, be careful why you pursue God and why the church gathers together. So he goes on, verse 6, he says, but godliness with contentment is 
true wealth or great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we could take nothing out of it. Man, you, man, when you were born, you looked like an alien. You were wrinkly, greasy eyes, all mushy, naked. I think pretty much everybody was born naked. And basically Paul says, you know what, you're leaving the same way. You're going to look like an alien by the time you go to. But here's the point. You didn't bring anything in. You're not taking anything with you. He says, but if you have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Number two is this principle live by. Contentment is about... It's about our desires, not our possessions. So here's the question the Apostle Paul is asking. What do you desire more than anything? People who want to... wealthiest people in the entire world. Every person in this room is wealthier than 99% of almost the majority of the world's population. You are rich, young person, young adult. You are rich. Hebrews 13, 5 says, keep your lives free from the love of money or the desires of money and be content with what you have because God said, I will never leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence when we are poor and when we don't have enough and when it looks like we're going to bounce our next bill check, which don't do, don't write the check, don't bounce it, call them, work it out. But he says the next time we get in that issue, remember the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So if you're a Christian, 
You are rich in Christ. Want to be free? Ask yourself this question. What do you truly desire? What are you chasing? Some of you guys, you just want to be rich. Most of our young adults, we make career choices based upon money rather than call of God. Be content. Be thankful. Remember the location of our true home and riches. It says this in verse 11. It says, but you, man of God or woman of God, flee from all of this, the pursuit of possessions and money. He says, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. He says, chase these, pursue these. These will be discussed in our life teams this week. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Guys, listen, it is a fight in our life, not to chase material possessions and money. It is. Every day we get up thinking, what do I need money for today? Gas, lunch, bills, lights, activities, free time, whatever I want. Every day, the one common factor that every person on the planet has is that every one of us think about money every single day. Some of us to a greater degree than others because we're struggling with money. He says, but don't chase that. He says, fight the good fight. It's a fight to stand and live an honorable life. It's a fight to, to live a content life, to be people of compassion and generosity. He says this, take hold, hold tight to the eternal life to which you were called when you make your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You need to understand, you guys have heard that for us, fight the good fight. But did you know that it was in the context of money and possessions and material things? And I want you to write this down. This is a principle to live by is that living kingdom-minded is a daily fight. It is. It's an ongoing battle. The world says stuff, more stuff, buy stuff, get stuff, have stuff, judge others by their stuff, chase stuff, get stuff. It is a fight to take hold of the eternal. Fight the good faith and hold on to what is eternal instead of chasing and consuming your life with money and material possessions. How can I be free from the worry of money, stuff? He says this, chase different things. Chase things that honor and build the kingdom for eternity. So this, hold loosely the things of this world. Hold tightly to the things of eternity. Hold loosely the things of this world. Now, that's what the travel bag is about. I've actually gone on a cruise before, and there's, uh, we had a friend take Nicole and I, invite us, and I've got some, some things that I would, might take on a cruise, right? I've got um, my hat because I don't want to mess with my hair every day. So it becomes, once the cruise begins, it's an everyday affair. Got my flip flops, right? I got my swim trunks. A lot going on in the pool and the excursions. I got my travel bag, you know, in case I do decide to fix my hair for that one night in the evening where we go out to eat in the nice, you know, the nice dinner. And, you know, my toothbrush and all that stuff. And then I've got a pair of pants. You only need one on a cruise. And I got a bunch of shorts. And um, I've got a bunch of T-shirts and some shirts. So I'm ready to go. I packed this morning. And guess what? I'm leaving on a cruise today. Just kidding. I'm not. All right. So. <laughs> yeah, I'll be back by next Sunday. Uh, um, 
So here's the, there's, we pack for a cruise, right? We pack for uh, the things in this life. And I want you to imagine that, that we're packing for things. And, but here's the deal. If I'm on the cruise and all of a sudden, you know, the ship is, is starting to go down, all right? The ship is going down and my stuff's floating in the water and, I, and I'm, you know, and the loudspeaker comes on, uh, please make your way to the boats, um, whatever they're called, the life rafts. Um, the, the ship, you have about an hour and you need to get to the life raft. And I'm not going, my clothes! And I'm not fighting through the crowd to get to my toothbrush. I'm not getting fighting through the crowd to get my hair gel or to get my favorite pair of shorts or my T-shirts that I really like from the concerts that I went to. I'm not going to fight through the crowd to get my flip-flops. I'm going to let them go down with the ship. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying simply, realize this. (laughs) That stuff doesn't matter because the real stuff's at home. I'm not going to go chasing the stuff that's floating in the ocean because I got better stuff at home in my closet. I got my real shoes and my real clothes and my real overnight stuff, not the travel size gel, but the real gel, not the travel toothpaste, and not the, I got my electric toothpaste uh, toothbrush at home. All the real stuff's at home. I'm not going to go jumping. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.